This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Today's message is also a little bit different from our series that we've talked to, t- taken a look at on fear so far. So far, we've kind of talked about uh, what do we do when unexpected circumstances come up? Uh, how do we deal with fear in those situations? How do we deal with the unknown? Uh, how do we deal with uh, the pressures that this world puts on us? And how do we face those with courage and boldness and not cower in fear, but walk in faith? And so all of our nine messages so far have been kind of that theme. Today is a totally different idea or different take on fear. And it's this, it's the fear of man. Fearing what other people think of you or feeling how, uh, fearing how other people value you, f- how you find your worth in the eyes of other people and what the Bible has to say about that. Proverbs chapter 29, we're going to start in verse number 23. We're really going to spend most of our time in verse number uh, 26 this morning. Uh, but we'll start in verse number, uh, 20, uh, sorry, verse number 25 is where we'll spend most of our time today. Uh, but we'll read through verse 26. So Proverbs chapter 29, starting in verse number 23. A man's pride shall bring him low. But honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Whoso is partner with a thief hateth his own soul. He heareth cursing and berayeth it not. Verse 25, again, where we're going to spend most of our time here today. The fear of man bringeth a snare or a trap. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Many seek a ruler's favor, but every man's judgment cometh from the Lord. We live in a world today that's consumed with self-image, and it's really no different uh, than in Jesus' time. Jesus challenged uh, his apostles and followers to not fear the world and to fear what other people thought of them. I grew up in a Christian home, but I didn't have a solid doctrinal foundation in my life, and so as I became a single man, I kind of tried to find my own way in life and and figure things out on my own, and I, I didn't want to be the same as my parents, I wanted to be different, and so I had to, you know, that kind of young man thing, chart my own path and go my own way and do my own thing, and I decided that I didn't need as much church anymore because that was kind of uh, not for me, and so I would go to church maybe once every three months or so, but I really wanted to learn more about uh, the world and culture. I grew up in a small town in Kentucky of about 4,000 people, and I didn't know a lot about life and the world and things like that, and so I went to a uh, Barnes Noble's uh, bookstore once upon a time. For those who don't know, there used to be large stores that held lots of books and magazines that you could go to, purchase these items. They would place them in a sack, and you could take them home with you. You might not be familiar with that process, but uh, there's still a, ha- a handful of those around. Now I went to the, the magazine rack there. I'm trying to find something that I can take home and read through and, and things like that. Uh, and so I'm looking through, uh, you know, uh, hot Mustangs and fast forwards, and I'm looking at cars with superchargers on them and stuff like that. Like, ooh, this is cool. This is fun. And I look at, uh, you know, other hot rod magazines and things like that, and men's health and men's fitness. And I came across a magazine called GQ. I'd never seen that before, and so I start flipping through it. And there's like a, a lot of really cool looking dudes and sharp clothes and sharp haircuts. And there's articles on how to wear your hair and uh, articles on how, how to treat women, and how to dress, and how this belt should never be worn with these shoes. It's just like, I don't know any of this stuff. I need to learn. And so I bought a copy of the magazine. I took it home with me. And as I'm reading through this magazine, my mind is blown. There's this whole world out there that I don't know anything about, about how you're supposed to carry yourself and how you're supposed to treat other people and how to get ahead in life and how to be the smartest person in the room. And I thought, this is fascinating. And so as I'm thumbing through, these cards keep falling on the floor. And for those of you that never looked at real paper magazines before, you don't understand what those cards are, but they're subscription cards. And so you fill out a card, you put your address on it, you put a stamp on it, send it back to them, and they'll send you a copy of the magazine every single month. I was just like, sign me up. This is awesome. So I subscribed to GQ Magazine. And then it came a point where it's like, I, I would get the magazine, I would read it in probably an hour or so, and then I wanted to read something else, and so I went back to this magical store full of books and magazines uh, that used to exist. And so uh, I found another magazine called Maxim Magazine. Now, again, I was not walking with Jesus at the time. Maxim Magazine is filth, it's garbage, it's basically softcore pornography. But for a 19-year-old boy who didn't know anything about the world and didn't have any spiritual mooring of any sort, I found it fascinating. So I bought a copy of Maxim Magazine and subscribed to that as well. And then I kind of got through both of those magazines fairly quickly, and I want to understand how other people think, and so I want to understand how females think, and so I started, no lie, I subscribed to Cosmopolitan Magazine. 
Now, can you imagine my wife meeting a guy who subscribes to Cosmo? Uh, that was me because I want to understand what's the difference between foundation and powder and can they use, be used interchangeably? I don't know, but I wanted to know, right? And, and he, <laughs> you laugh. It, it, I'm, I'm weird, okay? And you wonder how your pastor is so warped. Now you know. Uh, and so... But what I found is a lot of the things that I was reading began to make me feel really insecure about who I was. Like, I didn't know that you couldn't wear white pants after Labor Day, but I found that out, and I was embarrassed because I'd done that before. I didn't know that you had to wear brown or navy socks with brown shoes. I'd worn black socks with shoes before, and now I was self-conscious about everything that I did. When I go to the store and buy clothes, I can't buy clothes at that store anymore because I saw this was a nicer brand and I want to wear that. I want to be, uh, and you begin to look at these outfits that these guys are wearing in GQ magazine. If, you don't, if you're never familiar with it, first of all, don't get into it. It's all rubbish anyways. But you see this guy wearing this jacket that's like $3,500 and you're like, what? And you see he's wearing a bracelet that's worth $750. You're like, what? And you think to yourself like, I've got to get rich so that I can look good, so that I can be impressive to people. And it began to mess with my value system. And so I began to see the world through a different lens, and I began to value different things. Nice cars, nice clothes. And there came for me a time in my life where my God, my idol became materialism. I wanted nice things. I wanted to be thought well of. Uh, when my wife and I were dating, uh, no lie, I, I had a, a gym membership at Gold's Gym, and I had sprung for the unlimited membership that not only you got to work out there all the time, but you also got free use of the tanning bed. You, how funny is that, right? So after work every day, I would go, I'd spend probably an hour, hour and a half working out, I'd go to the locker room, I would shower, and then I would lay in the tanning bed every day for like 30 minutes. It's like, you look at that and you go, poor kid, what, like, what happened to you, right? You're laying in the tanning bed, reading Cosmo magazine, like, what are you, dude? But here's the problem. I was just trying to find my way and where I fit in this world because I didn't have any solid foundation. Unless we think that this is just a weird anomaly of me, you probably have your own story of trying to find your way in the world and trying to figure out where you fit and what's good and what's not and uh, things along those lines. Some of us probably at some point, if you're old enough, you had hammer pants. If you don't know what hammer pants are, you should Google it. They're absolutely awesome. Uh, and I'm not sure why they went out of style, but they did. Uh, but anyways, here's the idea behind it. This isn't a new phenomenon of people trying to find their value, their worth based on what other people think. It's gotten considerably worse, and I'm thankful that this wasn't a thing. When I was a, a young guy coming up, social media now has taken it to the next level. I read an article this past week in the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, that they did on Facebook, and it was uh, basically a, a study that Facebook had done themselves on the effects of the Instagram platform on teenage girls specifically. And here's what they found. This is their own research. This is not somebody who did a, a takedown article on the, This is Facebook's own research. 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. And how many of you know teenage girls always struggle with how they look and how they compare to other people? And Instagram found that their own platform made it worse. Comparisons on Instagram can change how young women view and describe themselves. We make body issues, images, issues we make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls, said one slide from their presentation. Now, mind you, they're presenting this to their own company saying, we cause body image issues for 33% of young girls out there. Teens blame Instagram for increases in the rate of anxiety and depression, says another slide. In five presentations over 18 months of this study, the researchers conducted what they called a deep dive into teen mental health and follow-up studies. And they came to the conclusion that some of the problems were specific to Instagram and not social media more broadly. So they're saying, hey, we're creating problems on our platform that aren't being created elsewhere. They found that social comparison was worse on Instagram than other uh, media, uh, social media apps. TikTok was typically uh, grounded in performance while users on Snapchat and other video and sharing apps uh, used filters to keep it fun and exciting. Uh, but in contrast, Instagram focuses heavily, uh, this is according to their own research, heavily on the body and lifestyle. 
And the features that Instagram identifies as most harmful to teens appear to be at the platform's core. The tendency to share only the best moments, the pressure to look perfect, and an addictive product can send teens spiraling towards eating disorders, an unhealthy sense of their own body, and depression. March 2020 internal research states, warns that the Explore page, which serves users' photos and videos curated by an algorithm, can send users into deep into content that can be harmful. According to their own research, it says teens told us that they don't like the amount of time they spend on the app, but feel like they have to be present. They often feel addicted, and to know what they're seeing is bad is for them for their mental health, but they feel unable to stop themselves. And the conclusion that they came to was, how do we get more people on our platform, and how do we keep them there for a longer time? Let me tell you this. And I might sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist, but these platforms are set up to cause you to fail. It's rigged. The whole system is a setup. And the worst part is the people who created the platform know it and they've determined that they don't care. And so you look at this and you go, Pastor, you just need to stay off the news websites and stop reading every article that you come across and things like that. Here's the thing. I didn't get this idea from the Wall Street Journal. I got it from where the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap set up that's going to capture you and hold you captive. It was a problem for me when I was a 19-year-old, 20-year-old boy trying to find my way in this world, and it's a problem for teenagers today, where we look at what the world has to offer, and then we determine my worth, my self-value, my, my worth as a person based on how other people view me and how other people value me, and the Bible says it's a trap. We see in this passage here this morning, Proverbs uh, chapter uh, 29, starting verse number 23, a man's pride shall bring him low. The root of all this really stems from pride, and pride destroys everything that it touches. At the root of every marital conflict is pride. Sure, there's probably some hurt. Sure, there's probably some issues to uncover. Sure, there's probably some things that need to be worked through, but the root of it is pride. The root of every workplace drama situation is always going to be pride. The root of any problem that you got with your neighbor or the person who lives across the street, it's always pride. I remember when uh, Angela and I had first gotten married, we got uh, stationed here at, uh, and uh, we got Navy housing at Pearl Harbor, Montalua Terrace, and we were the first ones to move into our neighborhood. Brand new Navy housing at the time. It was gorgeous. Nobody ever lived in our house, and we were excited. It was our first Christmas, and our neighbors next door at, like, November, like November 1st, they didn't even wait till like, after Thanksgiving, started putting up Christmas decorations. And I thought, this is so cool. And they had, like, the, the robotic reindeer out in the front that would put its head down and come back out. We thought, that's fun. Like, we come back home two days later, they got some big giant inflatable snow globe blowing snow all over the lawn. I thought, this is cool, this is fun, you know? And then it seemed like every week they would add something else to the point where the lawn was just covered. There was no space on the lawn for anything. And when Christmas time came around, we thought, this is so much fun. Like, our neighbors, like, went all out to make it special and, and things like that. And we took, you know, cookies over to them and invited them to church and stuff like that and tried to get to know them a little bit. And they were a little bit different, a little bit awkward and stuff like that. But it was, it was neat. It was our first Christmas is a married couple, and our neighbors are all gone all out, and we can put up a Christmas tree, and I hung lights on the front of our house, and it was awesome. What wasn't awesome was the second week of January, and all the stuff is still out on the front lawn. The Christmas lights are still up. All their stuff is still out, but here's the worst part about it. It's not inflated anymore. Now they've got a deflated snow globe on their front lawn that they haven't cleaned up, and I was furious. Like, here we are in a nice new neighborhood with brand new housing, and you're going to leave your Christmas garbage on the lawn on the third week of January. This isn't fun anymore. And every single day I would get home, and I would stew. I was frustrated. I was thinking, I'm just going to go there and just jerk it all down and pile it up in their driveway. They won't take it down. I'll take it down for them. I was mad. What's the root of that? Pride. They weren't hurting anybody. It didn't have any bearing on me one way or the other, but it made me angry. You know why? Because I don't want my neighborhood to look this way, and you don't have a right to do what you're doing. Pride. 
And the Bible says that only by pride comes contention. Wherever there's strife, wherever there's a rub, we need to check our heart and make sure that we don't have any pride. When I'm short with my wife or I pop off really quick and say something that I shouldn't, you know what the root of that is? The root is pride. When my kids need help for me when I'm busy in the middle of doing something and I say, hang on a minute. What's the problem? The problem is you've interrupted what I'm doing. It's more important than what you need. Pride. And the Bible says, Take a look at verse 23. A man's pride shall bring him low. The funny thing about pride is it has the opposite effect of what we intend it to have. We want to be puffed up with pride because we want people to think that we're somebody. But the Bible says that a man's pride actually brings him down low. And you don't actually make yourself better by puffing yourself up with pride. You make yourself worse as a result of it. People don't look at a proud man and think, wow, what a great guy. They think, man, what a jerk that guy is. And so while we might think that puffing ourselves up with pride will actually bring us up, pride actually will bring us down. And the Bible says that pride will be your downfall. Pride will ruin your life. It's interesting, the Bible speaks of these things doth the Lord hate. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. You might have heard those are called the seven deadly sins. First of all, Bible-believing Christians don't call those the seven deadly sins. That's kind of a Catholic thing. Because Bible-believing Christians know this, all sin is deadly. All of it, 100%. So there's no seven deadly sins. All sin is deadly. But the Bible says these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination. The word abomination means God makes God sick to his stomach and wants to vomit. You know what the first thing is that God hates? A proud look or pride. God hates pride. With every fiber of his being, he hates pride. And here's what he says. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You want to be proud? That's fine. Just know you're going to fall on your face really, really quickly. We all get a kick out of those YouTube videos of the guy in a cycling race that at the end he's like pumped up and he's excited and he's celebrating and some guy whizzes past him and busts the tape before him. It's like, ha ha, I celebrated too early there. Or you see some guy in a fight that's showboating and he's got his arms down like this and throwing his, his head around like that and sticking his neck out and he gets his knock, block knocked off. We all laugh at that because it's funny. That's what the Bible says happened. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's only a matter of time before pride catches up for me, with you and takes you down. A man's pride will bring him low. So I've got to continually check my heart and make sure that my heart is humble before the Lord. I need to make sure that my heart is right before God, that my heart's not puffed up with pride, that I'm not trying to make myself into be somebody that I'm not. Because pride will ruin you. And not only that, pride also hardens your heart against the truth, capital T, truth. When we talk about truth, there's certain types of truth. For example, the grass is green, the sky is blue. That's lowercase t truth. That is a true statement. Today is Sunday. That's a lowercase t true statement. Capital T truth is biblical truth. The sky is blue. The grass is green. We have breath in our lungs on the first day of the week to worship the Lord because God is gracious and because God is good. God spoke everything into existence with his word. That's capital T truth. When God gives us commandments from his word, that's capital T truth. When the word of God gives us good Bible doctrine, that's capital T truth. And the problem with pride is that pride hardens our heart to capital T truth. You see, I don't really need what the Bible has to say. I got this figured out on my own. I don't really need to pray about that. I know exactly how to handle this. I don't need any help on this. I think I've got this. And pride is one of those things that just absolutely ruins you and it hardens you to what's actually true. I think I shared this a few weeks ago, but I can't tell you how many times I've been at Home Depot wrestling a piece of four by eight drywall or plywood or something like that on top of my wife's minivan by myself and some guy comes by and says hey you need a hammer with that and I say nope I'm good I got it why because I don't want this guy to think that I couldn't do it with his help it's just like dude look at you you're like 200 pounds overweight and you want to help me with a piece of plywood I got it I'm stronger than you I'm tougher than you I can get it on my own if I can't I'll drag it behind it before I get your help 
You know why? Because I'm proud. I don't want to say that I need help. I don't want to admit that I'm weak. And pride hardens our tr- ourselves to not only the truth of situations like that, but what the Bible says. And I cannot tell you how many times I've sat across the table from somebody and challenged them with biblical truth, and they say the exact same thing. I know what the Bible says, but my situation's different. Oh, okay. In all of God's word, throughout all of creation and all of eternal history, you are the one exception to God's rule that he created. Come on. You're just not being honest with yourself. I can't tell you how many times I've sat across the table from men who tried to convince me that it was okay to look at pornography because their wife wasn't meeting their needs. Oh, right. You know what the Bible says, but pride has blinded you to capital T truth. Well, I spend time with the guy at work at the office because my husband doesn't give me the attention I need. Oh, got it. So there's a reason why disobeying the Bible is okay for you. That's pride. I didn't get what I wanted, so I'm going to disobey God to really get what I want. Only to find out what you wanted wasn't what you wanted after all. The Bible talks about the children of Israel how they griped and complained and they were wandering in the wilderness because they didn't have anything to eat. God gave them manna from heaven, but that wasn't good enough. They complained more, they complained more, and they complained more, and God says, fine, I'll give you what you want. And the Bible says this. This is such a deep verse. God gave them their request, but he sent leanness under their soul. Fine, you can have it. The Bible is so explicit. It says that they ate the fish that God had given them until it came out their nostrils. You want it, God's going to force feed you and give it what you want. But here's what they found. That wasn't enough for them. It didn't scratch the itch that they had. Because you cannot, and again, through this series I've said time and time again, you cannot disobey the word of God and have the peace of God at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. You can't, have a proud heart that you don't need to know what the Bible says because you know what to do in your situation and have the peace of God. It just doesn't work that way. And so having a proud heart shuts off the truth. The Bible says in Psalm 10, verse number four, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God and God is not at all in his thoughts. So beware of pride. Pride will ruin your life. Pride will ruin your marriage. Pride will will destroy everything in your life that you hold dear. And so keep a humble heart. Be willing to say, I don't really know what's going on here, but I want to. I'm not sure what to do here. I think I'll ask some good godly counsel. I'm not sure what to do in this situation, so I think we should pray. Hey, I'm sorry for the way that I handled that the other day. I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't kind. Humility does that. And here's what the Bible says about God's grace. God resisteth the proud he pushes away the proud but he gives grace to the humble and i don't know about you but i want god's grace i don't want god to stiff arm me but pride we got to check our heart because it creeps into every area the desire to be liked the desire to be valued by others that comes from a spirit of pride particularly verse number 25 the fear of man bringeth a snare it sets a trap Fear of man lays a trap that will eventually catch you. It's interesting here in this passage that it doesn't say that the fear of man is a snare or it w- is a trap. It says it lays a trap for you. Not that you'll get caught right away, but you'll eventually get caught by it. It lays a trap that will eventually get you caught. We had, uh, when we first moved into the building on the other side of this. And so for those of you that don't know, we just moved into this side of the auditorium four years ago where our children's ministry is. It used to be our main auditorium, and we didn't have this, this half of the building. And so um, when we first leased the, the, that side of the building, our family of five was the only people we had in our church, and we couldn't afford to rent a church building and also have a place to live at the same time. So uh, we kind of set up a little apartment upstairs, and our family still lives here at the church building, for those of you that don't know. But um, we have a little apartment upstairs that we made our own. And so when we first moved up there, it was basically an attic. It had been for probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. 
On this side over here was a massage parlor that stayed open until about 2 a.m. on Saturday nights and the weekends. And then upstairs, they had apartments that uh, nefarious individuals would rent on a weekly basis. And so it was a bad scene. And once upon a time, uh, they had actually busted a, a gambling ring up, up here that had an FBI sting and busted a gambling ring upstairs uh, here in this building uh, that was being run upstairs. And so shady, shady stuff going on. Well, in the top of the, the, the concrete o- over here, there were holes... And we began, and we were there for uh, probably the first three weeks or so, and my daughter, Michaela, said, Dad, I saw something running across the, the ceiling. And she was probably five at the time. It's just like, sweetheart, you don't know what you're talking about. There's nothing up there. And she's like, no, it, it is. I think it's a cat. Sweetheart, we don't have a cat, and we're never going to have cats for sure. And she was like, well, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a squirrel. I was just like, Whatever. My wife wakes up the next morning, and she's like, sweetheart, there's something here. We go to our, our, our pantry, which was basically like a, a wire shelf like you get at Home Depot. That was our pantry. We kind of stacked all of our stuff on. And so the good, da- the good old days. And so uh, she said, there's, all the food has been chewed through in here. I was just like, she said, I think we got rats. And I was like, oh, no. And so uh, I set out, I went to, to Home Depot, and I bought a mouse trap, like this big, right? And, and I hear it go, snap. And then I hear, and I go and look, and the mousetrap's gone. It snapped something, but whatever it was took it away. <laughs> That's not good. And so then I go back to Home Depot, and I find out that they have rat traps, which are larger, like they have probably a, like the size of a three-by-five card, and they're a lot harder that they hit with. But the thing is, they only had two rat traps, and, and so I bought both rat traps, uh, and, and I set them out, and man, they started popping, pop, pop. And you go, sure enough, Rats, like the size of probably like a gerbil, like like big rat, like bigger than my, probably both my fists together would be a rat, and then I had a tail on it that was probably 12 inches or so. <laughs> yeah. And so, first day we probably caught six or seven of those, I mean like probably every couple hours I'm, I hear a snap, and I'm going and throwing them in the, the garbage can and stuff like that. And then I realized, we're going to need more than two traps, and so I go back to the store, and I realized that I bought all the rat traps that they had, they only had two, but they have glue traps. I thought, I don't know anything about this. And so let's get glue traps. You know, that'll, that'll stop them. And so we put out glue traps. And the, the few glue traps that we put out, first of all, the first one stepped in one of them and dragged it the rest away and dragged it away. But then we actually caught one in the glue trap. But here's what you don't think about when you buy stupid things like this. And you don't know what you're doing because you were raised on GQ magazine and Cosmo. Um, <laughs> you don't realize that when a rat that size steps in a glue trap, it doesn't die. So you either have to do one of two things. You have to wait for it to starve, or you have to kill it. So, and then you think to yourself like, oh, I'm going to go get the rat, and I'm just going to throw it out in the dumpster. And you go to reach for it, and it starts hissing at you and trying to bite you. You think, this is a bad idea. So then I go get, I go get a, a garbage can, like the bathroom-sized waste basket, and I hold it underneath there, and I get like a little short two-by-four, and I rake it off into the, the thing. And it starts wriggling around in there. It's like, it feels like it's like shaking and stuff like that while you're trying to carry it out, and you're like, what? it's like hissing in there and scratching at the, at the glue in there, and it's mad as it can be. If you're squeamish, you should probably plug your ears right now, and so, because I'm getting ready to say something that might be upsetting to you. You've been warmed. So... I look at it, and you got to kill it, so what do you do? I've got a two-by-four in my hand, and so I take a two-by-four, and I start mashing it on the head <laughs> until it stops shaking inside there, and then I bag it up, and I throw it away. Hey, I warned you. You thought you were big enough to handle it. You weren't, okay? Uh, not my fault. Okay, I'm done with that. I'm done. Don't use glue traps. Moral of the story. So, and, and no lie, I kept a tally. We were like over 50 rats that we ended up getting. And so we ended up plugging the holes there, and they were still coming over. And, and, oh, it was awful. <laughs> My son Vanderlei, it was awesome. He was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 at the time. I hear him, Dad, Dad, in the bathroom with the door shut. Dad. I go, what? He goes, there's a rat in there. And so I go in the bathroom, there's a rat in there, and I open up the door, he's standing on the toilet, and the rat is running circles in the bathroom. 
And our bathroom's like three by three. I mean, there's nowhere to go. And so it's just like, oh my goodness. And so like, what do you do? Do you like put a mousetrap there and like hold it? No, you put it in a, in a waste can. You put it, something over the top and then you take it outside and you get a two by four. And it was <laughs> awful, awful. But here's the thing. The Bible says the fear of man is a trap. It's going to catch you. You might not die right away, but you're still stuck. You're still in danger. You're still at the mercy of someone else because the fear of man lays a trap that will eventually catch you. And here's the thing. You'll be brought down, and your pride that you held so near and dear to your heart will eventually be humbled. Here's what Jesus says in in Luke chapter 14, verse number 11. Whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And the thing about the fear of man, verse number 25 again, the fear of man bringeth a snare. The fear of man puts us in bondage to the master of others. Now I'm a slave to what other people think of me because I've allowed them to place value or to remove value from my life. Now they call the shots. Now they have power over me. Now they get to determine how valuable I am. I was talking to a pastor several years ago, not a friend of mine, just an acquaintance. I wouldn't be friends with a guy like this, but he said, yeah, I got in an argument with a guy on Twitter the other day. We're going back and forth, and he goes, this guy pastor somewhere in Oklahoma, and he has like 15 Twitter followers. Like, I care what he has to say. I thought to myself, did you just determine that this guy was of no value because of the number of people that follow him on Twitter? Like, first of all, arguing on the internet is a stupid thing to do. Okay, stupid's not a Bible word, and our kids shouldn't use words like that. It's a foolish thing to do, to argue with people on the internet. Foolish is a Bible word, so I can use that. <laughs> arguing with people on the internet's a foolish thing to do because everybody loses. But second of all, to value someone based on the number of social media platform followers that they have is ludicrous. Who does stuff like that? The world that we live in today. I read another article dealing with Instagram and teen girls, and they would find they would post photos of themselves, and they found, here's the, the worst part about this, they found that the more skin and the more provocative the photo they posted, the more likes they would receive. First of all, that's setting girls up for failure. Just know that. And let me help all the ladies out here tell you and tell you this today. When you put out meat like that, the only thing that you attract are flies. You don't catch a good godly man by showing more skin. You don't catch a man who values you for who you are, who God by posting salacious photos on the internet. That doesn't help anybody. But what they would found was these girls would post photos of themselves, and if they received only a few number of likes, they would delete the photos because it was embarrassing for them to post a photo of themselves that only got six or seven likes. And so they would try then again, maybe with a different filter, maybe with different lighting, maybe with a little bit more skin showing, maybe a little bit more leg, maybe a little bit more cleavage to post a new photo and see if that got more attention and they determined their value and their worth based on the amount of attention that they received from strangers on the internet, which are more than likely just a bunch of creeps. Dangerous because we allow ourselves to be the master, other people to be the master of how we value ourselves. It's a dangerous place to be. Unless you think that pastors are exempt from this, they're not. Generally, when pastors get together at, uh, you know, preaching conferences and stuff like that, and you meet somebody that you don't know, you usually ask a series of questions. Hey, what's your name? Oh, that's great. How long have you been pastoring? Awesome. Where do you pastor? Great. What do you think the next question is that they ask? How big is your church? 100%. Every single time. And so, hey, I'm Steve. I pastor in North Dakota. I've been pastoring for about six months, and we've got about 20 faithful people. That's cute, Steve. God bless you, brother. Amen. That's, that's cute. Oh, my name's John. I pastor in Los Angeles. I've been pastoring for 25 years, and we run about 6,500. Uh, COVID took us down to about 5,000, but we're building our way back up. Oh, wow, that's impressive. 
tell me more about your amazing, impressive church. Steve, his cute little church, you should listen and take notes from this guy right here because obviously he has more value than you do. So here's the thing for me. When I go to stuff like that, I don't play the game. My name's Anthony. I'm from Honolulu. Uh, next month, our church will be eight years old. Man, praise God, we're going to have an awesome celebration October 10th. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be incredible. Eight years at who we call it. How big is your church? We've got about 7,000 square feet right in the middle of Honolulu. We're about, you know, 100 yards from Alamoana Center. And that might sound small, 7,000 square feet, but the price of real estate in Honolulu is about $15 a square foot. So, man, God's been really, really good to us. And then I just have like a blank smile. That, that's what you're asking, right? And you can tell it makes people uneasy because that wasn't really what they wanted, but now they've got to like ask again. And they say, well, no, I mean like, how much does your church run? I'm not sure. Our auditorium could probably seat 300 people if we packed them all in really tight, but we have two services on Sunday and things like that. Because I'm not going to play into that game. My friend was telling me about a, a pastor in Texas that he knows that has 150 acres of land, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to build on it because somebody just donated $10 million to their church. They're trying to figure out what they're going to build. So they decided they're going to build, I think it was six or seven collegiate-style gymnasiums where they can have basketball tournaments for all over Texas and people could come to this town uh, and play basketball tournaments there and then they could use that as an outreach opportunity to different people and stuff like that. <laughs> Look at that. And I think to myself, 150 acres? 150 acres in, in, on Oahu, you couldn't buy it if you wanted to. And at a million to $2 million an acre, you know, $300 million. Man, if we, had, if we had $5 million, we might be able to purchase our building that we're in. Maybe. I, I, I think the last appraisal of the, this, just the structure, not anything inside it, just the four walls of this space right here was, was uh, appraised at like $4 million the last time they did an appraisal. Four million bucks to buy a bunch of cement block? Wow, that's impressive. But if I compare to what somebody else does in Texas to what God's doing here, I'll be really disappointed. I'll be discouraged. But if I look at what God's done over the last eight years and to see the hundreds of people that have been saved, the 200 plus people that have been baptized, the nearly 500 people that have gone through our discipleship program, and to see what God's done in the midst of a global pandemic that we didn't shrink, we've actually grown. I look at that and I said, praise God, he's doing something special here. But if I look at what God's doing in other people's lives, I might get discouraged and frustrated because he didn't do that for me. But I can't allow other people to determine my value. I have to allow God to determine the value that I have. And so again, I've seen so many people get hung up on the title that they have or they're embarrassed to say what they do in the military because people think less of them or things like that. Hey, look, I was an enlisted guy. There's no shame in being an enlisted guy. Man, that's the backbone of the military is enlisted folks. And if you're an officer, man, praise God that you're an officer. I don't care. I'm not impressed by that. I don't care what you wear on your collar when you go to work on Monday morning. I'm not impressed by that. And here's the thing. God isn't impressed by it either. Here, you're loved because of your value to God not based on your job title, how much money you make, or what kind of house you live in. You're valued because you matter to God. And that's it. That's all I care about. Man, I think it's neat that you fly planes. I think it's neat that you're an attorney. I think it's neat that you're a doctor. I think it's neat that you work at Long's. But I'm not impressed by any of that. Because God isn't either. And so we need to stop allowing other people to place their expectations on us before we determine whether or not we're successful or not. I don't want man's approval. I want God's approval. I don't really care what other people think about me. I care greatly about what God thinks about me. I can't allow myself to be in bondage to the master of other people. But here's the thing that the fear of man also does is the fear of man removes our desire to please God. When I'm so worried about pleasing everyone else or pleasing man or pleasing uh, the people that I work with or the people that I grew up with or the people that follow me on social media, when I'm so concerned about pleasing them, I can't please God at the same time. As G.K. Chesterton said, the quote, we fear man so much because we fear God so little. And we're so concerned with what other people think about us that we're not concerned about what God thinks about us. 
And you say, yeah, that's just that kind of the society that we live in today. No, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse number 28, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body and hell. Hey, don't worry about man that can just kill your body. You need to be concerned with about your eternal soul and the one who holds that. You need to be less concerned with what other people think about you and more concerned with what the God of the universe thinks of you. And here's the thing. Just know, everything on this earth one day will burn and nothing will be left. And when you stand before God one day, God's not going to ask you what your boss think about, thought about the job that you did. God's not going to ask how impressed your neighbors were with what kind of car you drove. God's not going to ask how impressed your parents were with what kind of school you, their grandkids went to. God doesn't care about any of that. When you stand before God, there's going to be one question that's asked of you. What did you do with Jesus Christ? And friend, please understand this. Heaven or hell is not determined on how good you are, what type of life you live, but based on who is paying for your sin. All of us have sinned against the holy God. All of us stand in danger of God's judgment. I deserve to go to hell for my sin. You deserve to go to hell for your sin. But Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for our sin. That whosoever would believe in him could have eternal life. And friend, you need to know more than anything in this world that you're born again, that you're saved. Because outside of Jesus Christ, there is no hope of heaven for you. Jesus said he's the only way to heaven. Faith in him is the only way that you're going to make it. And Jesus says you should care less about the people around you, what they think about you, you should be more concerned about the God who has the capability to send you to hell. And so I'm concerned. Is everything right between me and God? And Jesus says in John chapter 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And friend, if there's never been a time, a day, a place in your life where you've been saved, where you've received eternal life from Jesus Christ, you need to make sure that that's settled above anything else. Because when this world passes away, the only thing that will matter is what did you do with Jesus? And eternity is a long time to live without God and to be punished in hell for all of eternity. So Jesus says, focus less on what other people think and more on what God thinks. And you see, the fear of man is based on a lack of value on the things of God. I worry about what other people think of me because I don't really value the things that God values. Man, I, I learned from reading all those heinous magazines that I, that I read. Women want guys with a six pack that make six figures that's at least six feet tall. The holy trinity of sixes, right? Six figures, six pack, six feet tall. That's what I wanted. That's what, what I thought I needed. And I read articles about how to talk to women and how to change the conversation and get people to like you. How to, how to hold a good conversation, good eye contact. I learned the places to take girls on dates and things like that. And I read the Cosmo magazine, the things that girls are telling the girls that they need to do to catch a guy. And I thought, man, that's what I need to be look out, looking on the lookout for. And here's the thing. I didn't value the things of God, and the world doesn't either. You're not going to find a magazine at the checkout line that says, find a man that loves Jesus more than he loves you. That's what every woman needs. You're not going to find an article in, in GQ magazine that talks about righteousness and holiness before a holy God. You won't find it. You know why? Because the world doesn't value those things. That's cute. You might find an article about faith and higher power and all that other rubbish, general spiritual talk, but you'll never hear people in this world value the things that God values. You might get from somebody that you work with, I'm glad you found something that works for you, but that's not for me. But the world doesn't value the things that God values. And so you've got to make a choice in the value system that you buy into. Do you want to value the things of this world, money, status, success, or do you want to value the things God values? Holiness, righteousness, His Word, people. You've got to pick a side. Because you can please the world or you can please God, but you can't do both. Simple as that. And you might say, well, I know somebody that walks a really good line. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but know this. If you try to please the world and please God at the same time, 
you won't be popular enough for the world and you won't be godly enough for God and you fail in both cases. You say, well, I don't really believe that that's the case. I believe I could probably do both. Okay, then enough about what you think and what I think. What does the Bible say? James chapter 4. Friendship with the world is at enmity with God. If you want to be a friend of this world, that automatically makes you an enemy of God. You still think you can do both? I don't think so. The Bible doesn't think so. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. That's what the Bible says. Proverbs 29, 27, an unjust man is an, ab- an abomination to the just, and he that is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. You know what it says? The wicked man hates the man that does the right thing, the righteous, just man. The just man hates the wicked man. They're at odds with one another. You can't do both. Pick a side. Even Jesus made it really, really clear. You're either for me or you're against me. Well, I kind of want to take the middle road where I can enjoy the things of the world and also enjoy the things of God. Then you will be lukewarm, which according to the book of Revelation makes God want to vomit. Pick a side, really. You want to be praised by the world? Just know this, you'll never receive the praise of God. You just can't do both. And you need to pick a side. Psalm 118, verse number 8. It's better to trust in the Lord than to have confidence in men. But you know what faith in God actually gives us? It gives us a boldness and peace. As we're taking a look at this series of fear less, and we want to find boldness, we want to find confidence, we want to find faith, that comes from putting our faith in God. Again, if you take a look at verse number 25 in our passage, the fear of man bringeth the snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Keep your finger here in Proverbs. We're going to come back in just a second. Flip over to Daniel chapter 3, if you would. This verse might be in your notes, but I want you to see it in your Bible. Because it's so good. Tell the familiar story of three Jewish boys by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king had made a decree. We're going to make a big golden statue. And when the trumpet blows, everyone will bow down and worship the golden statue. And three boys said, no, we won't. It's a Daniel chapter 3, verse number 16. These three boys are brought before the king. And they said, you need to bow down or we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. The phraseology there sounds a little bit weird to us. We're not careful to answer this. Basically what they're saying is that we don't really care what you think about what we have to say. We're not trying to be diplomatic. We're not trying to choose the right words. We're just going to tell you what's what, and you can like it or lump it. We don't care. And here's what they say, verse number 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. Hey, look, if God wants to, he can save us from the fiery furnace. We believe that. Now, it's interesting to note here, they didn't say that God would or that God had to. They didn't decree. They didn't speak on behalf of God. They said, hey, if God wants to, he can save us from the fiery furnace. But here's what they said in verse number 18. I love this. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Hey, look, if God doesn't show up and doesn't save us, we don't care. We're still not going to bow down. Don't care what you say. God can save us if he chooses to, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. And that's some boldness from some teenage boys. Now, mind you, they weren't the only three Jewish boys there. They'd taken a lot of the Jews into captivity. And when they blew the horn, all the other Jews bowed down. And I can imagine a couple people going like, Shadrach, just bow down, dude. It's not that big of a deal. Seriously. Come on, Meshach. Are you really going to make this big of a deal? Just bow down. Get it over with. But they wouldn't. You know why? Because they didn't fear man. They feared God. They said, hey, 
I'm not going to dishonor God. I'm not going to disobey God because you say or because everybody else says. I'm not going that route. And look, if I die, I die. I'm going to honor the Lord. And they had boldness, and they had faith, and they had peace because they valued God so greatly. Turn back to Proverbs 29 if you would. I want to challenge you to live for God's approval, not the approval of this world. My job as your pastor is to, first of all, help you know for sure that you are saved, that you're born again, that the moment that you take your last breath here on planet Earth, that you'll be in heaven with the Lord. I want you to know that you're saved first and foremost. My second job as your pastor is the day that you stand before God in judgment for your life, that you stand before God with joy, not regret. That the day that you meet your heavenly father, eyeball to eyeball, that he can say, son, you weren't perfect, but you done well. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come on home, son. Come on home, daughter. I'm glad you're here. I would hate for you to stand before God one day with your hands in your pockets, staring at the ground, kicking rocks, saying, I was just so worried about what everybody else thought. I just want to have nice stuff. I just wanted people to think I was successful. I took the things that you blessed me with and I used them for myself because I thought it would be fun. But now I'm embarrassed. I don't want that for you. So it's my job as your pastor to challenge you to live with eternity in mind every single day. You see, the world's approval is a moving target. If you want to impress the world, you've got to continue to keep up your game because the, the mark is constantly moving. My wife watches all these crazy shows on HGTV. I think that HGTV is a tool of the devil. Uh, but... Uh, she likes these, like, you know, where you buy an old house, you fix it up, and you flip it, and everybody wants an open floor plan and an island in the kitchen, right? Everybody. The love it and list yet, where they fix up your old house, and you decide you don't want your old house, you want a brand new house, and all that stuff. She loves stuff like that. Well, she's been watching for probably, I don't know, probably 10 years now, a show called Million Dollar Listings. And back in the day, 10 years ago, they would find these houses in like Beverly Hills for $1.2 million that were overlooking a canyon with a big, huge pool in the back with fountains with fish that spit out water in circles for $1.2 million. You look, now you'd be like, I'd totally take that for $1.2 million. Can you imagine them doing a, a, a million dollar listing in Honolulu? Can you imagine? Well, for $1 million, we got this three-bedroom in Kalihi with a detached garage. It was built in 1942. Cracking the foundation. You'll probably have to bulldoze and restart it, but we can get it for a $1 million. But you need to put in an offer today because we've got four other offers on it. Can you imagine? million-dollar house here is not impressive. You need to get to like $5 million to be impressive. You need to get like the $6 million range before people say, wow, this is nice. And you probably need to go to like $10 million to be Instagram worthy of a house here. You know why? Because it's a moving target. I remember I had a friend who bought the first iPhone. Wow, it was impressive. There were no apps on the first iPhone ever. Like $1,500 for a phone that basically had a web browser on it. Everybody was like, can I see it? Can I hold it? The whole screen is touch screen. You don't have to use a stylus. You have a keyboard where you can type. So impressive. They weren't like iPhone 13's coming out. You got an iPhone 10? <laughs> when are you going to upgrade? Goodness. You got an iPhone 12? The new one has 30% more speed and 5% more battery life. Don't you want that? Because the world's success is a moving target. What was once impressive isn't all that impressive anymore. And I, I, get, I get invited to stuff all the time, uh, and we had a, a guy who's a, a part of our, our church um, a couple years ago. He's being promoted from, I don't know the Army's rank structure. He's basically being promoted from a one-star to a two-star general. And he asked me to come to his promotion ceremony. Man, I'd be honored. And so I went there, and they've got like an 06 colonel like stocking the cooler back there. 
while all the generals walk around and, and, and salute and talk to each other and laugh and stuff like that. And there's like a legit, like, oh, six guy, like, pouring ice in, a, in an igloo cooler back in the back. And I think to myself, goodness gracious. <laughs> the guy that everyone else, like, I would be, like, ultra impressed by this guy. He's the cooler stalker at this get-together. You know why? Because success is a moving target. Whatever you think is successful isn't successful six months from now, six years from now. But here's the thing about God. God's success, his expectations are unchanging. The things that God valued 4,000 years ago, he still values today. God's commandments that he gave us 2,000 years ago are still as valid today. The things that Jesus placed great importance upon are things that are still important to Jesus today. It doesn't change. Psalm 34, verse number 10, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord, they shall not want any good thing. And so we find that safety and peace is found in the favor of God. We find the word favor and grace sometimes used interchangeably in the Bible. But the idea of grace is God's undeserved or unmerited favor. And my own personal definition for, for favor is God doing something for you that he's not doing for other people. In the Psalms, we'll see the psalmist asking God to cause his face to shine upon us. That means, hey, would you give us something that you haven't given someone else? And God's favor, God's blessing brings safety, it brings peace, it brings comfort. Again, verse number 25, the fear of man bringeth the snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And God gives his favor to the humble. You want to be proud, you want to puff yourself up, you want to act like you're somebody, you want to impress the world, guess what? God's removing his hand of blessing and favor on your life. Again, God resists the proud. That means he pushes them away. But he gives grace, he gives favor to the humble. I don't find my value in what other people think of me or how impressed other people are by me, by my resume, by the things that I've accomplished in my life. I want God to be impressed with my love for him, my love for people, my desire for his word. And we need to be less concerned with what others think about us and greatly concerned with what God thinks. There's a big idea in all this. Stop worrying about what the world thinks about you and start worrying every single day with what God thinks about you. I don't want to have a perfectly curated Instagram feed. I want God to be honored with the way that I live my life. I don't want to get a bunch of likes because I took a picture of my daughter on her 13th birthday. My daughter turned 13 this past week. She's officially a teenager. But here's the thing. You know what I posted on social media? Nothing. I don't need people to give me thumbs up, to make me feel like somebody. I don't need fake internet points. I just need to love my daughter and love Jesus. We had a birthday party for her. We took pictures, we sang happy birthday, we had fun as a family, we made some good memories. I took her to school, I carried cupcakes into her classroom for her. Did I post any of it on social media? None. No. You know why? I don't need to be validated by you for that. I need the love of my family, I need the approval of the Lord that I've been a good father. That's it. So we need to stop living a life that's a put on, that's a show for other people. I don't need to impress anybody. I just need to impress the Lord. A friend of ours, Angela, and I was talking to a couple of weeks ago. We were getting some good godly counsel from her. And she mentioned this idea that, again, brought me back to the Bible because all truth comes back to the Bible. And she, she shared this idea of the, what she called the worth meter. That all of us have a meter where we determine our value. And she says, if we get promoted at work, our worth meter goes up. If we get a that a boy from somebody on a project we work on, our worth meter goes up. If somebody says something negative about us, our worth meter goes down. And she says, our worth meter constantly fluctuates. She said, but when we do that, we give other people the power in our lives to determine our value. She said, but our worth meter should be fixed. 
and that my worth and my value doesn't change based on my circumstances or what other people think about me. And my immediate thought went back to God's word, that the fear of man's a snare. It's a trap that allows people to mess with our worth meter. But my value is found in who I belong to. My value is found in Jesus Christ, and that's fixed. You can't change that. So I don't care what you think about me. I care about what God thinks about me. I don't care what value you place on my life. I know the value that God places on my life. When we think about valuing things, some of the ways we find value on, when we buy items or purchase things, and one of the shows that my wife got hooked on for a little bit, I'm, I'm thankful she's got, gotten off of it, was the American Pickers, where they go to barns, and like, this hubcap came off of a 1969 Lincoln Continental. I hadn't seen one of these in 10 years. I'll give you $50 for it. And it's just like, what the world? Like, are we really watching? But here's what my wife does. She turns on TV shows, and she walks out of the room. And then it's like, oh, now I've got to watch the whole show to find out what happened. But some of the ways that we determine the value of something is, first of all, the intrinsic value to the owner. How much is this worth to the person who owns it? For example, when I was cleaning out our, our closet a, a few weeks ago, I was doing a, a construction project in our bedroom. I was cleaning out our closet, and I found this box on the bottom of the floor. It was like a gift box, but it seemed really light, like there was nothing in it. I almost threw it away. And I opened it up and found in there a picture of my wife's mother and a letter that she had written to my wife. My wife's grandmother is near and dear to her. She was super close to her, especially in her growing up years. Always had a really close relationship with her, uh, always. And man, I loved her grandmother. She was so much fun. But her grandmother would always write letters and send them in the mail, back in the day when people used to do stuff like that. And inside this box was a picture of her that she had had like an Olin Mills where the church had taken their photos and she had gotten a, a photo and she put it in the box and she wrote a letter. And it said, to my darling McKeely, on your birth, you'll never know your gaga, but you'll, but you'll always know that you were loved. And she wrote this beautiful letter in there, and I almost threw it away because I thought the box was empty. And I opened it up, and I took a picture of it, and I sent it to my wife. My wife sends back the crying face emoji and all that. And so, but I thought to myself, like, wow, I think I almost threw this away. Now, if I were to bring that out to you guys today and say, I'm going to sell this today to the highest bidder. How much is that worth to you? Cute story. I'd give you $5 because I feel sorry for you, but it's really no value to you. What's the value to my wife? Immeasurable. Can't put a price tag on it. Special. Treasured. Why? Because of the value that it has to the owner. The second thing that we use to determine the value is the price that was originally paid for a particular item. So, I like to collect watches. It's one of my things that I do. My wife has put a moratorium on new watches, and so uh, she basically said, no more watches. You're kind of done. But I have uh, two watches uh, that I have here today. One of them is a uh, Bell and Ross uh, watch. Beautiful square face. Kind of an aviator watch. Got a bunch of those dials in the middle, so you never really know what they do. You just push the buttons on the side, and they keep spinning, you know? Uh, and so, beautiful watch. Uh, Bell and Ross watches start somewhere about around $3,500. This particular model, probably about $4,000 for this particular watch, right? Then I have a Shinola watch, a silver with a navy face. It also has the other dials that you don't really know what to do and the buttons to push on the side as well. This one probably, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars, uh, but nice looking watch. To, but uh, if you're taking a look at these watches, which would you say is more valuable? You probably think the one that's probably a $4,000 watch would be more valuable, right? Here's the thing. This watch, the Shinola watch, was given to, my, to me by my wife on our 20th wedding anniversary automatically has value. But you say, but this is a $4,000 watch. But that's the thing. It's not a $4,000 watch. It's a $30 watch that I bought off of a Chinese website that looks like a $4,000 watch. <laughs> Some of you are thinking like, why does our pastor have a $4,000 watch? <laughs> because it's not a $4,000 watch. Now, you look at this. What's the value of this? Maybe $20. And just know this, once the batteries run out on this, because it's not automatic, even though it's supposed to be, once the batteries run out on it, you probably can't get the back off and get it back on again uh, because it's that cheap of a watch. But if you look at it from where you are, you might be impressed by my watch. I might even post a photo of it on Instagram with me with my Bible open and my hand out on there, <laughs> enjoying some time in the Word of God this morning. And you'd be like, what the world? Right? But here's the thing. 
It has no value. It's literally worthless. Why is this valuable? Not so much because of the price that it was paid, but the value that it has to me personally. What does it have to do with anything, Pastor? What's your value? Your value is first and foremost based on your intrinsic value to your owner. Who do you belong to? You belong to God. Secondly, what's the price that was paid for you? What, know you not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost? For you're not your own. You were bought with a price. What was the price that was paid for you? The blood of the only begotten Son of God. So what's your value today? You're of immeasurable value to your Creator, and you are of great value because of the price that was paid for you. John 3.16 sums up your value. For God so loved the world. He didn't moderately sort of kind of enjoy the world. God loved the world, and He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's your value today, friend. Not based on what people say you are, what kind of car you drive, what kind of job you have, how much money you bring home, what neighborhood you live in, where your kids go to school, where you graduated from, what people call you, the letters that come after your name. Those things provide no value in the eyes of God. But you are worth immeasurable value to God because of what God has given you and the price that he paid for you. So if you're here today and you're a child of God, I want you to know your worth is not found in the things of this world. And especially for you teenagers and your young, younger single adults, if you could get this locked in early, your life is going to be so much easier. Stop worrying about what other people say, how they value you. Worry about how God values you. But if you're here today and you're not a child of God, know this, God still loves you, but you don't belong to him. According to the Bible, you're the enemy of God right now. And so if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, please know God loves you. He does value you. He does love you. But you're not truly a child of his until you've been saved or born again. And so if there's never been a time like that for you today, you need to be saved today. But for those of us that are Christians, that know for sure that we're saved, let's live according to our heavenly worth, not our earthly worth this week. Let's not seek the approval and praise of man but let's seek the Lord's approval this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.